Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network. With host Ranger Doug. Here's Ranger Doug. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our 38th program here on the Veterans Radio R2.0. We're now on our 18th program in this series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. We took several weeks to put up programs that had been recorded previously simply because we felt that it was appropriate at the time of the year. We also had one that was actually recorded almost 20 years ago during our Veterans Radio R1.0 where we actually had uh, General Hal Moore and Joe Galloway, as well as the producer-director, Randall Wallace, on the program to talk about the first battle of the Iodrang Valley in Vietnam and the book and movie that oriented around the title, We Were Soldiers or We Were Soldiers Once and Young, a very interesting and stirring program. But tonight we're dealing with some situations that have arisen. Right now, it appears there's a stalemate. No one's really making any gains. The Russians have declared a pause, but the pause is probably for retooling, retraining, preparing. Each of the enemies are studying each other, and they're ensuring that they know what's going on, conducting reconnaissance, espionage, and other things to try to determine dispositions. Possibly some new tactics, weapons, and other things will be coming out. We know the West is greatly assisting the Ukrainians, but uh, obviously the Chinese, the Iranians are assisting the Russians. So it may be that the Russians are going to be incorporating some new weapons, uh, some new tactics, and they'd be ready to strike uh, with some new capabilities, in fact. Or they may go back to the same that they've been doing, the heavy use of artillery, limited maneuver, and they have not yet been able to really integrate all arms into a combined arms warfare element, which they were able to do in World War II under the great Marshal Georgi Zhukov. But they, at that same time, never could match the Germans uh, unit for unit. At any rate, we're here. The people on the program tonight will be giving their personal opinions. We're not doing anything in an official capacity. We get everything we get from open sources. There's no classified. There's no attempt to create any classified. None of us has been to the battle area to produce eyewitness reports. There also will be no partisan politics. General Grange is out for a while. He'll rejoin us when he can. So at this point in time, I'd like to turn it over and have the guests then introduce themselves. So we'll take a moment to do that. Brian? Over to you. Uh, Brian Downing, three years in the Army back in the early 70s, one year in Vietnam, uh, went to college and graduate school on the GI Bill, Georgetown University of Chicago, taught school for a while, but I've been an independent analyst ever since. Like it best that way. Thank you, Brian. Okay, Jason, over to you. Hey, Doug. Jason Black here. Uh, Great to be back for another uh, episode. Hey, I did uh, 29 years in the Army, combination of infantry armor, and then uh, most of my time was in special forces, and then went and did some other uh, global security work afterwards. Great, and thank you. Well, Commander Sergeant Major, over to you. Hey, Ranger Doug, thanks for the uh, the invite back as well. The uh, you got a great program going here, and I'm, uh, I'm honored to be a part of it. Most of you guys know my story. I, I started out as a little Ranger Nug in uh, 1st Ranger Battalion under the tutelage of uh, then-Captain Dave Grange. Uh, spent 26 years in uniform, retired as a command sergeant major out of uh, fifth group. I had a great career. I mean, I walked on every continent, but Antarctica and, uh, and Australia and uh, served in two of the three ranger battalions and four of the five special forces groups and wish I could do it all over again. Right. And uh, 
I know you well and, and know also the audience would be interested to know that you not only participated in Eagle Claw, what we also know is the Iran raid mission, but uh, we're on the ground in Mogadishu uh, operating severely in 93, the operation called Gothic Serpent, where you were severely wounded and recovered and continued to serve for decades. So both you guys are highly experienced, as is Brian, who started out in Vietnam with uh, irregular forces as a youngster and still today is uh, tracking war and helping us out. So thanks to all of you. Okay, well, Brian, then over to you to start the program. Give us your assessment. Where are we in the war? I think Putin believes he has the formula to win the war now. He used the heavy artillery, pound everything relentlessly and pitilessly, and then advance. Uh, it worked to some extent in the east. As I said, they've taken very heavy casualties. But I think the Russians believe they can continue this. There's the operational pause now, but I think they can. They believe they can continue this in the east and then drive on Kiev and expand on the land bridge to Odessa and Transnistria. They hope to swallow the whole country and annex it. Uh, they're going to exile lots of the people to various peripheral parts of Russia and press others to flee to the West and settle the country with loyalists. Zelensky, I think, is preparing another line of defense in the East, this one just east of Krematorsk, where down the Russian forces when they redo the offensive and prepare for an attack on the land bridge from Harrison. Back to you, Ranger Duck. Thank you, Brian. Jason, then the first question passes to you. Where do you think Ukraine and Russia are today in the war? Hey, thanks, Ranger Doug. Uh, I won't call it a stalemate, but I would say that things are probably pretty static on the front lines right now. Uh, and what we've seen over the last couple of months is a transition from a war of maneuver to a war of firepower and artillery. And... Uh, that's an old Russian TTP that they've used for uh, almost a century now. Uh, so as they uh, realize that their maneuver forces weren't going to be effective, they've transitioned, they've gone to their, their A game, which is their artillery. And that's causing some, some uh, negative impacts on, on the Ukrainian side. Uh, right now, today, you kind of see uh, the Russians in an operational pause. They're not pushing forward in any large fashion to try and capture more territory. I think they're consolidating, uh, reorganizing, and, and setting conditions for the next phase, uh, whatever that'll look like. Uh, I do know that uh, the HIMARS systems that uh, the United States and some of those other systems that NATO has sent to Ukraine have been used to good effect. And what we're seeing right now is, is um, the duel between precision provided by these advanced Western weapon systems measuring up against the mass of just the thousands of artillery tubes that the Russians can bring to bear. And uh, both sides are having devastating effects. In fact, I'm hearing reports of plummeting morale and unwillingness to fight by Ukrainian units who've endured days, weeks of almost incessant shelling from the Russians. Um, so as committed as the Ukrainians are to their uh, independence and defending their territory, uh, the, the massed Russian artillery is having a negative effect on their ability to fight. The HIMARS, uh, on the other hand, we've seen it be effective against a couple of uh, high-value targets uh, over the last week. I know they've hit uh, some supply depots, and I think they've taken out a couple command and control locations. And an interesting thing, uh, our national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, this week was talking about the fact that Iran 
is uh, planning to provide Russia with several hundred UAVs on an expedited timeline. And I believe uh, what we're seeing is the Russians are an adaptive and a thinking enemy. They adapted to the Ukrainians' ability to blunt their maneuver. And now they recognize that this new threat to them, this precision, long-range artillery and rocket capability that the West is providing Ukraine, needs to be negated. And so they're turning to an external source to, to grab some UAVs. They're probably going to be weapons-capable UAVs, which means that they'll probably use those to neutralize those HIMARS systems. And, and uh, I think to date we've provided less than 10 of those systems. They're easily identifiable. They're, they, they have a signature that can be identified and they can be targeted. And the UAV is probably the, the system to do that. Interesting that the Russians don't have their own UAV, tactical UAV capability, and they're having to turn to Iran for that. But So it'll be interesting to see if they're successful in, in acquiring them, fielding them, and being able to blunt Ukraine's use of precision long-range fires. That's it for that part. Thanks. Thank you, Jason. Okay, Command Sergeant Major, where do you think Ukraine and Russia are today in the war? And what do you think's going on at the grunt level? You know, Ranger Doug, you you, uh, you fellas are scratching my itch, and I'm going to double up on my melatonin tonight in order to get some sleep. But uh, but th- this this stuff keeps me up at night. I, I was talking to Jim Lechner. You guys probably know Jim. He's uh, he's a war correspondent over there, and uh, yeah, I chastise him for being crazy enough to go over there and, and actually put himself in harm's way again. But he. He was, uh, he's reinforcing everything that Jason was saying. The, uh, I mean, the carnage, he says the carnage that he has seen over there is, uh, is, is like tantamount to World War II, stuff he thought he would never see again in his lifetime. I mean, entire armor formations with dead Russian bodies in it that are just smoked and, uh, you know, and laying on the side of the road and been there for, for days and weeks. Uh, he, he attested to the, to the artillery counter battery fire. I mean, a, a, a T-80 tank rolls up and takes a, uh, takes the Ukrainians under fire. They, uh, they throw some artillery against it, take out the tank, but uh, before they can displace and move their artillery, the, the Russian counter battery just goes in and flattens the grid square. So, uh, he, he says it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's just crazy. Yeah. This the stuff that, uh, that keeps me up at night. Is uh, you know, you had a 19 year old anarchist, you know, the, the social justice warrior of his day, a kid by the name of Princip, killed the uh, Archduke Ferdinand and Sophie, and uh, and started World War One, and, uh, and and that's the thing that keeps me up at night is that uh, where does this thing go? You know, how how does it spiral? You know, uh, how do we pull back? Can you even pull back once that starts to happen? The uh, and and if you look at the the World War One, I, I mean the uh, you know the Russians go to communism after that. I mean that that whole you know the Tsar falls, you know the Austro-Hungarian uh, Empire falls, the Ottoman Empire falls, Imperial Imperial Germany falls. So all the chess pieces in the world, all the uh, you know the current world order gets you know redone almost overnight. And, uh, and and we're kind of at one of those moments in time right now, you know, where you could argue that uh, we've got major, major nations, you know, vying for power and the changing of the world order. So uh, so something like this could be the spark that, uh, that that causes that catalyst to happen. Yeah. One more thing on the shelling, too, Jason, the uh, I mean, you're spot on. You look at World War One, you look at World War Two, the uh, you know, it drove guys crazy. Being uh, being just constantly shelled. It's uh, and also I, I think uh, you know Doug, what you were talking about too. 
the uh, I've never met a Ukrainian that doesn't want to kill Russians. And, uh, and, and, and so there, there is that visceral hatred now that's going to be very hard to come to the table and walk back. I'm kind of rounds complete on that one. Yeah, just to recap a bit of uh, what we've said in previous programs and still are tracking today, the Russians have a great arms industry and they develop lots of great things. But since they've not any longer been able to endure production uh, at high volume, they generally produce them under contract as items they want to sell to someone else, and they fail to keep enough of those systems for themselves. So, for example, some of the great aircraft they've got, uh, other weapons, uh, they, they've sold them to other countries, but they've got to figure out how to now make some or get some back. And so they might have made several drones and begun selling them to someone. Iran may have copied our drones since they got several of them from the Afghan war or the Chinese are helping them out as a third country or whatever. But now it comes time for everybody who's getting all these systems, just like the Ukrainians, to have to take each new piece and integrate it into warfare. What the Russians had as a problem when they came out was they had all the pieces for combined arms warfare, that being uh, fires like artillery and missiles, uh, infantry, armor, aircraft, UAVs or drones, UAV or UAS, unmanned aerial system, unmanned aerial vehicle. But until you have doctrine that allows you to train in a combined arms way, integrate those so that they each supplement one another and allow protection of the other, they're just piecemealed. And they started out that way. Now, as they've moved forward, just like they did in World War II, the Russians appear to have developed some ability to integrate better. And they've now taken a pause. We don't know what the pause is for, but the pause may be for a certain amount of retraining and reorganizing, just as Marshal Zhukov did in World War II. And the one thing that we're always concerned about is the longer the war goes on and the more uh, damage it inflicts on either side, the Russians at 140 million people with a giant landmass, the Ukrainians with 40 million people, will, will become enraged in, in, a, in a level of fury that means they can never stop. A while back, if there had been some kind of progress on one side or another and they got to a table, they might have been able to agree to stop fighting and figure out what to do next. In this case, now they're in a war of attrition. It probably goes on for a longer time than we expect. And the big effect will be felt by the world because right now the world's breadbasket is at war and a lot of crops that needed to be planted, a lot of wheat and other things that needed to be grown, fertilizer and so forth, will not be on the market to fuel uh, coming months and years of food production such that countries that rely on that in this integrated world of ours are not going to have it. And there'll be not only famine in certain areas, but unrest as well. So this has global consequences that the war has continued on. Okay, we're going to move to a commercial, and we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Attention. Looking for semi-drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois, is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. (laughs) 
Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. We're back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Ranger Doug. This is our 38th program, Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. We're back to Russia moves into Ukraine. This is the 18th episode in that series. I have with me tonight Dr. Brian Downing, Jason Black, and Command Sergeant Major Retired Rick Lamb. That takes us now to the second question. Uh, We've already discussed where are Ukraine and Russia today in the war. What are the current war aims of Russia, Mr. Putin, and Ukraine, uh, Mr. Zelensky? Uh, Brian, again, you'll take that one. Uh, The Russian offensive in the east has taken, in the last week or so, two medium-sized cities, Severodonetsk and Lysychansk. After three months of very hard fighting, it really can't be called a great Russian victory, but it did stop a slew of relentless defeats, and there's probably a sense of confidence in Russia now. How long it will last, we don't know. The Ukrainians have been fighting a defense in depth. They gave up ground very grudgingly and inflicted high casualties along the way. How high are the Russian casualties? We don't have solid figures, of course, but months of attacks against determined forces in defensive positions must have been very costly, and probably very costly on their best units. Russian ground operations have slowed greatly in the last week. There's an operational pause as units are refitting, but I think things are also being slowed down by Ukrainian attacks on Russian supply depots well behind the lines. At least 10 have gone up in powerful blasts visible for 25 kilometers or so. And I, for one, am proudly hailing those red glares. Uh, weapons, apparently the high Mars that have recently been del- delivered, but also fighter aircraft. How do they find these locations? Don't know for sure, but a Ukrainian civilian with a cell phone can provide very good intelligence and precise GPS. A few more generals and colonels have been killed, and as I've always said, the Russian army offers opportunity for rapid promotions. Substantial guerrilla activity in Kherson and other occupied territory in the land bridge. Russian soldiers are being killed in cities, and so are Russian-appointed officials. It's getting worse and worse for the Russians in these cities and the occupied areas, especially along the land bridge. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Okay, Jason, over to you. What do you think the war aims are at this point? Thanks, Doug. Ukraine needs something decisive to happen to stem the attrition that's taken place uh, in their 
country. So Zelensky will continue to lobby and pressure the West and Western leaders to provide the kind of advanced weapon systems that uh, his forces are going to need to achieve something decisive, a decisive defeat on the battlefield of the Russian forces that, that are in, in Ukraine right now. And right now, you see hesitancy on the part of the West to provide wholesale large numbers of, of advanced weapon systems, which is what it's going to take for, for Ukraine to be decisive against the mass Russian firepower and the forces that are on the ground there. So that's probably where he's focused right now. Uh, Long-term stuff is, is taking a back burner to meeting the immediate needs on the battlefield. On the Russian side, I read this somewhere, so it's not my original idea, but I don't think the war in, in Ukraine is going to end as long as Putin's in power in Moscow. I mean, this war was his idea. He planned it. He's directed it. He's justifying it to his people. In his mind, his ultimate goal, which extends beyond Ukraine, is to restore Russia to its former greatness back during the Cold War. And it's not possible for him to do that if he doesn't own Ukraine. So no, no matter what the conditions are on the ground are or what happens, there could be a traditional ceasefire, but I think Putin's strategic objective won't change. He'll just transition to irregular warfare, hybrid warfare, uh, whatever the, the current term of the day is, uh, instead of using conventional military forces. But the war will continue even if there is a ceasefire. Thanks. Okay, Command Sergeant Major, over to you. No, that was that was well put, Jason. I, I, I can't really add anything to that. The, uh, you know, again, talking to Jim Lechner over there, he, he kind of sees it uh, as, as our, you know, he puts it in our Civil War template, you know, where you've got, uh, you get the Ukrainians, you know, the underdog, you know, the Confederacy, if you will, and uh, who had, you know, pretty good leaders, had a lot of heart, but uh, won a lot of early battles. But then you got the Union that, that rolls in with all of its, uh, you know, resources and its industry and everything else and just boils over them. So he kind of sees it at that point. Uh, in the battle that, uh, that and, and I agree, they're going to give, how, how do you not want to help the Ukrainians? I mean, they, they're in a existential war, you know, for their freedom. And uh, it's, it's hard to not want to help the Ukrainians, but, uh, but then again, what I, I go back to, you know, I'm, I'm going off the rails again here, the, uh, you know, the national interests, the amount of money that, uh, that, that, you know, we're already what 30 trillion in debt and we want to send billions more over to the Ukrainians. Uh, and yes, we do. I mean, because uh, you know, how, how do you not like Zelensky when we offer him a plane ride out? And he says, no, just send me ammunition, send me bullets, send me guns. And uh, so I, I think that's the thing that we've got to come to grips with is uh, what what do we do? What does NATO do? What does the West do? You know, what are uh, what national interests are at stake? You know, can we afford this thing and can we afford it to to, to spin out of control? Yeah, the uh, I I, I kind of agree with Jason. I mean, I think it's going to go into stalemate. It's going to sit for a while. It's going to simmer, and then they're going to do uh, they're going to go unconventional. But, you know, one of the things that uh, everybody forgets that the Russians did we, when it was the Soviet Union. You know, a lot of ethnic speaking Russians uh, were sent out to the different uh, satellite countries there to to run everything, to run the trains, to run the government, to run the industry, and then those people married into the population. They settled and uh, in Russia. You know, kept the TV stations, kept the radio stations, kept the newspapers in print. So you had a lot of ethnic Russians, just like you had a lot of ethnic Germans in the Sudetenland uh, before you know World War II kicks off. I mean, they were they were actually throwing roses and, and flowers in front of the German troops as they as they marched out of Germany into, into the Sudetenland, you know, the German speaking Sudetenland. So and we forget that the 
the seeds of World War II were actually sown in World War One. So again, all that kind of stuff uh, is it, it's a whole nother podcast of uh, you know how how much support do we provide and how does it affect our national interests to do so. Thanks, Rick. That was great. Okay, so we'll move on to our third question. Uh, what are the noticeable activities of and or effects in or on the U.S., NATO, the EU, the world, including the PRC? That's a big question. So, uh, Brian, over to you. Well, I see happening. Uh, there's uh, some hopeful th- things going on with the wheat exports. Russia has been closing that off. But Turkey is brokering an agreement whereby uh, I think Russia and Ukraine will be able to export through the Black Sea, through the Straits, into the Mediterranean. That will ease world food prices and the attendant political instability that goes with them. Uh, President Biden is going to Saudi Arabia this week. He wants Riyadh to boost oil output to reduce uh, prices, high High oil prices are bad for the world economy and bad for incumbents like Joseph Biden. Uh, last week, Putin sent an emissary of his own to Saudi Arabia. It was his Chechen warlord, Kadyrov, whose troops are fighting with the Ukraine. He's probably signaling Mohammed bin Salman that the U.S. order is cracking. The Ukraine war is showing that. I don't think that's true, but I think that's his message. And that Russia and China are the future of the world. Iran. Um, some reports are saying, you know, the U.S. State Department is saying that Iran is selling a lot of drones to Russia. Um, Iran is denying that. Uh, I don't know the truth of that. Uh, if they do sell drones, it will be probably the end of the Iran-U.S. dialogue to end the sanctions. And back to you, Ranger Doug. Thanks, Brian. Uh, Jason, then over to you, sir. Thanks, Doug. Uh, starting with the U.S., uh, noticeable activities. Uh, the U.S. is moving at the speed of bureaucracy instead of at the speed of war when it comes to providing material support to Ukraine. And uh, we've seen some provision of some precision weapon systems, some funding, some, some other stuff. But uh, the, the mantra in D.C., and it's kind of bled over into NATO, is as long as it takes. And... What that says to me, if I'm Vladimir Putin sitting uh, in the Kremlin, is they're fighting not to lose. They're not fighting to win. So I can take my time and do whatever I want, and the West will not be decisive. So it's really not clear what the U.S. is trying to achieve, what our goal is, and when it comes to providing weapon systems uh, to Ukraine. Are we trying to help them win, or are we just trying to help them not lose? And I'd say it's probably the latter, and that's not decisive. And again, as time goes on, as you were saying earlier, Doug, the situation over there is not going to get better. It's going to get worse. It will be more complex and it will metastasize and you will see uh, the conflict spill over beyond Ukraine. Uh, And it may not be maneuver warfare, but it'll be other forms of warfare that take place. Uh, Right now, um, NATO and EU, again, uh, nothing decisive. They're looking at how they're going to stay warm this winter. And I've said that in previous episodes. I'll say it again. Uh, but right now, time favors uh, the Russians. And uh, so I think NATO and EU are more focused, more focused on figuring out how they're going to achieve energy security than they are on doing anything uh, decisive in, in Ukraine. Um, and again, they've adopted that mantra as long as it takes, which means... Uh, more and more attrition on the battlefield. So, uh, 
you know, if you look at Ukraine's economy, it's going to shrink by 45% this year because of the impact of, of, of the war uh, on their agriculture and their industry. Uh, Europe is feeling the pinch also economically. Um, and, and Russia seems to be doing all right despite sanctions. Uh, some of those sanctions are starting to atrophy as people uh, in, in Europe realize they still need fossil fuels from Russia. Uh, the PRC, uh, again, uh, they are watching and paying attention, and they are watching the West's response to this, uh, particularly in light of their aspirations uh, in Taiwan. And uh, we're starting to see some fracturing or some fragmenting of Western resolve, and I'm sure that, that uh, the PRC finds that very interesting uh, as, as they watch. Um, the developments there in Ukraine, and they're taking that on board and refactoring that into their strategy uh, in the Indo-Pacific region. Thanks. Great. Thank you, Jason. Rick, over to you. Yeah, Jason, that was, uh, again, outstanding. The uh, it, it, Again, the, what keeps me up at night? I mean, the the problem is history. We, uh, if you don't know history, you're, you're, you're doomed to repeat it. And I, I remember being a, a, a Ranger Doug, if you'll indulge me a bit, the uh, I remember reading the book About Face by David Hackworth, you know, when I was a young ranger. And uh, if anybody didn't know about David Hackworth, I mean, he was uh, this young, crazy kid that joins the, the, the post-World War II Army, you know, in the late 40s, and uh, he goes to Italy. And uh, so he grows up in the Brown Boot Army, you know, with a bunch of the vets, um, cuts his teeth in combat in Korea as a young kid. And, uh, and then he goes to Vietnam where he commands a battalion, the Wolfhounds. And, uh, I mean, this is the guy that you wanted as a young ranger, you wanted to model yourself after guys like Hackworth and Grange. I mean, those, those were your heroes, right? And so about three quarters of the way through the book, I, I never finished the book. I threw it down in disgust at the end because he, uh, he started kind of souring on the nation and the department of defense, you know, and the, uh, and, and the whole way that Vietnam was handled. And again, I'm a young kid, and I'm like, what? Yeah, Pinko. And uh, you know, I'm too naive to understand why he's disgusted. And uh, I'm, I'm a hell of a lot more sympathetic now. And because, uh, you know, it's like, I, I'm 63 years old, right? So I, I remember the Paris Peace Accords. Yeah, I remember that we had a victory in Vietnam Day on 27 January 1973. I had two uncles who served in Vietnam, and we watched it on TV, right? And we were happy to have them home. So, uh, I also remember the fall of Saigon in 75. You know, I, I joined the army two years right, you know, right after uh, uh, Saigon fell. And uh, again, the Vietnam vets met me at the bus stop and trained me. You know, they turned me into the soldier that I, that I became. Right. So, uh, you know, the, the, U, the U S reneged on our promise of the Paris peace accords because, you know, our heart wasn't in it. The, uh, and we watched Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos fall to the communists and about 5 million people died in Southeast Asia. And that's not counting the 58,220 U.S. dead and the 1,246 Americans that are still missing. So again, the, uh, you know, Jason, you're, you're, you're spot on. Is this thing, is this thing good? You know, what is the West going to do? I mean, you got a couple countries that join NATO, the, uh, which again, just, just pokes the Russian bear even further. And uh, it almost guarantees that it escalates to some, to some degree. And uh, I, I just don't, uh, I don't know that we understand it enough or have the stomach to, to do the right thing, you know, whatever the right thing is. 
And uh, so we're just going to kind of, uh, you know, as long as it takes it. But the problem is, if you look at, uh, you know, I served in Korea as a young kid up on the DMZ. And Korea is still a powder keg. It's, it's, it's unfinished business. You know, it's plagued Asia for over 70 years. And we lost close to 40,000 U.S. troops in the Korean War, you know, 50 through 53. And, uh, you know, we, we watched uh, North Korea develop a nuclear weapon after our, our leaders told us, nah, that's never going to happen. So, uh, so that's, that's what happens when you do just enough. You know, I mean, MacArthur gets fired for is it no substitute for victory. You'll go into Congress saying, hey, we need to kick these guys' ass. We need to finish this. And, uh, but it seems like we never finish anything. We just, as long as it takes, we do enough to not lose. So, uh, I mean, Afghanistan, again, I'm going down our track record. Not that I'm, I'm anti-U.S. or I'm negative. I'm just saying you got to know history. You know, we watched you know, the pullout of Afghanistan. And we lost 13 more dead soldiers during that. And we added their names to the 2,448 that were already on that butcher's bill. And we left behind hundreds of U.S. citizens and billions of dollars in U.S. weapons, ordnance, equipment, and resources. We left that to the Taliban. And what did the Taliban do? Overnight, they become one of the best equipped militaries in the world. And they immediately cracked down and started killing innocent people again. So nobody gets held accountable for that. That's a problem. You know, the leaders that are responsible, they're still in charge. And again, I'm not hacking on them. Those are hard decisions. I'm just saying. You know, the early departure from Iraq in 2010 arguably gave rise to ISIS. You know, that whole that whole you know battle cost us 4,576 U.S. lives. And now we're set to watch Iran develop nuclear weapons as the same leaders told us that... Uh, continued to tell us that, hey, that's never going to happen. And then you got the China piece and everything else. So, so Doug, I'm sorry for being negative today. You know, I'm, I'm just recovering from COVID. And uh, so my, you know, I got some brain fog going on. You know, the, the more I watch this, the angrier I get. Hey, Greg, Command Sergeant Major, uh, you sounded great. And I'm sorry that you had to go through that COVID thing. Give me a call if it happens again. We have a doctor in the house. And thank you for what, what each of you have said here. Something I wanted to mention, too, when you mentioned David Hackworth, you know, in his later life, he was seen as a journalist and had always been seen as somewhat of a wild card. But just let me give you an idea of what this guy had achieved in war. He was in the Merchant Marines at the end of World War II because it was the only way he could get in underage and he falsified his identity. He was able to use that then to enter the Army in 46, and he served continuously after that, taking a quick break for two years of college. But just as an example, this is what this guy ended up with as far as awards for valor. Two Distinguished Service Crosses, our second highest award, 10 Silver Stars, the Distinguished Flying Cross, eight Bronze Star Medals with V-Device, in other words, for valor, eight Purple Hearts, 34 Air Medals with V-Device. He was known to have gone into combat once uh, on the skids of UH-1, firing his M4 or M16, I should say, while attempting to extract some of his soldiers from combat. This was while he was a battalion commander. He, he frightened a lot of people. I was actually working at one time for a battalion commander who'd worked for him in Vietnam, and it was instructive to listen to him talk about uh, David Hackworth. So he was a guy who, like you say, Jim Lechner, became a correspondent, but who had a heck of a history. We're going to move to a commercial now. We'll be back in a moment. Thank you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. 
The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Welcome back. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0, our 38th program, our 18th in the series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. Tonight we have with us Dr. Brian Downing, Jason Black, and Command Sergeant Major Retired Rick Lamb. Our next question, I'm just going to summarize because it lets us move on to the final question because we've already discussed the fact that the way the war is going, uh, our next question would have been on peace efforts, but really there will be no peace efforts until somebody makes a break. Either Ukraine wins something locally and it can use that for leverage, but since Russia itself is on a pause now, that pause is not for them to come out with some kind of peace offering. It's for them to come back and try something new or try the same thing over again with more vigor this time. Meanwhile, they will have spent a lot of time preparing their populace, probably training, and uh, possibly even figuring out how to integrate some of their capabilities and integrate new weapons being provided by some of their partners or allies. And that's just it. We say that they had a problem in uh, integrating the various bits of their force, which they may be able to do better now that they've had experience at it. And we've always given them lessons learned so they can learn how to improve themselves. Our problem, as the Command Sergeant Major said, is we do great integrating everything in combat and we achieve the desired results, but we don't convert the fight to reinforce the policy at the end so that we actually find ourselves having achieved what we set out to achieve, whatever that was. And that's something that, that we, uh, obviously as a country, 
uh, must work on. We'll move on to that last question, which is a simple one. What can we look forward to in the coming weeks? And that will be taken first by Dr. Brian Downing. Brian, over to you. I think we're going to see the Ukrainians continue to use the HIMARS, the uh, highly mobile artillery rocket systems, to hit the Russian back areas, the supply depots, ammo dumps, uh, fuel depots. They've been having great success with that lately, and I think it's going to continue. I think we're probably going to see more HIMARS sent to the uh, fronts. Uh, they're working so successfully. Uh, the Ukrainians love them. And I think we might see in time the HIMARS start hitting Russian front line positions. Uh, that could be very devastating on some of the Russian troops that are war weary, the ones, the best ones, and the bad ones that uh, really don't want to be there. Heavy artillery is uh, no fun to be under. Um, Ukrainian attacks on the bridges connecting Crimea to the Russian mainland. This is east of the Crimean Peninsula. Uh, that would be a tremendous embarrassment for Russia. Crimea would be isolated. The logistics in the area would be endangered. And in conjunction with uh, a coming Ukrainian drive from Kherson, the Crimea could be in danger. Uh, the Russian manpower situation, as I've said, they've taken very heavy casualties recently. Putin remains reluctant to mobilize for war. That would undermine his narrative of being in control. It could cause anti-war sentiment, which is presently quite limited, but it could cause it to grow. Most Russians support the war, I believe, but that doesn't mean they want to take part in it. It's one thing to be cheering things on from St. Petersburg or somewhere, but it's quite another to be out there on the steps. Moscow has ordered the various regions to raise volunteer battalions. That's a way of getting around mobilization. Uh, by way of closing remarks, I think this is the most important war since World War II, and I think we and our Western allies have to realize that and act accordingly. A loss would lead to a dark shadow falling over all of Western Europe. The unity of that area, the democratic institu institutions would be endangered. Some European states might uh, have to recognize Russian hegemony and make accommodations. And something like that would happen in East Asia vis-a-vis -vis China. Back to you, Andrew Doug. Thank you. Okay, Jason, over to you. Yeah, I think we're uh, we're entering late summer right now in, in the conflict in Ukraine, and so you've got a few more months of warm weather where NATO and the United States can potentially achieve something decisive if they would open up the floodgates of military aid and, and provide the Ukrainians capability to counter that massed Russian artillery. Uh, and then what's going to happen as as we get into winter is. I believe you'll see, uh, as, as the temperatures drop, you will see NATO and the EU's resolve evaporate as they realize that they are completely dependent on Russia for heating and, and energy and, and the stuff they need to power their industry and their economy in Western Europe. And when that happens, Putin will see an opportunity and, and perhaps you'll see uh, renewed vigor and some sort of a Russian offensive. Also, the ground will freeze up. So uh, maybe two and a half, three more months of, of maneuver space for, for NATO and the United States to really help Ukraine achieve something decisive on the battlefield. And then uh, advantage is going to go to the Russians uh, 
unfortunately, I don't see that happen. I don't think we have the political resolve uh, in the West right now to to take that decisive step because, again, people are looking at the clock and the calendar, and and I still think that wholesale Western leadership is terrified of provoking their their word provoking Putin. I think Putin's already provoked. He's inspired and provoked. And so that fear is probably obsolete. Thanks. Great, Jason. Thank you very much. Commissar Major, over to you. Hey, again, great job, Jason. I mean, it, uh, you summed it up perfectly. Uh, you, you and I are going to have to get together for a beer, man. I, either you come to uh, Florida and we'll do it on the beach, maybe a Corona or something, and, uh, or, or we go to Colorado uh, and, and have some Rockies. But, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I, I don't know. I, I agree. I don't think we had the, the resolve um, nor the clear understanding of, of, of what to do at this point. And, and again, the thing that uh, is, is scary is that the world is currently in the midst of this great change and upheaval. And uh, I mean, you know, just this week, you, know, you see Sri Lanka. I mean, you see uh, you know, the stuff going on in Holland. I mean, you see the, uh, you know, and, and, and you're right. People are going to starve and they're going to freeze. And when you get hungry and when you get cold, man, you do crazy stuff. So, uh, so the whole world is in the, the midst of this great change in upheaval, and we don't understand it. And, uh, and it's going to get worse. And I mean, everybody feels it. Every uh, former soldier just feels it in their gut that there is something wrong right now. And, uh, and, and to make matters worse, we're, we're way overdue for one of those global enemies that we have, you know, about every hundred years. And, uh, and again, if we don't have a firm understanding of the problem set, a solid plan, you know, achievable goals, identified and enforceable red lines, you know, clear limits, uh, and an exit strategy, you know, what, uh, like, like Ranger Doug said, you know, what do we do after the greatest military on the face of the earth, which we still own? You know, what do we do after they win all the tactical and operational engagements? Uh, and when then we turn it over to, uh, the whole of government or the strategic approach. And then we, we end up wasting all that, you know, precious blood and treasure. So, uh, so how do, how do we, you know, if we don't, if we don't have that clear understanding, we're going to fail. And uh, I don't even think we understand the ramifications of, of the impact of another Cold War or a proxy fight. You know, in 1980, we were uh, we were killing Russians by proxy and uh, in Afghanistan. And uh, and, you know, we were a large part uh, responsible for uh, for their defeat in Afghanistan. So what did they do during the 80s? I mean, Ranger Doug, you, you remember this. Jason, you, you, you served during that time frame. I mean, the, the world was on fire. All the all the uh, the communist and socialist movements in Africa, all the communist and socialist movements down in uh, down in Latin America. I mean, they, they were kidnapping U.S. generals. They they bombed a discotheque uh, in, in in Berlin. I mean, you know, anything from the Bider Meinhof to the Red Brigades. I mean, all those uh, you know the Sendero Luminoso, the FARC. I mean, those were all Russian proxy organizations that uh you know funded and that, that, that just moved out across the planet and kept us busy kept us occupied and uh again much like vietnam the uh you know those proxy fights is, is where the sf guys in the 80s cut their teeth and I mean, we, we brought back you know we stopped them in el salvador we brought back countries like bolivia peru even nicaragua uh, they got rid of ortega for a short period of time and that's all seventh group stuff so uh, we don't even understand that, you know, that we need to get our guys, our SF kids back into uh, Africa, back into their areas, back into their languages, because this proxy fight, this, uh, you know, why, so, because again, we're killing Russians by proxy in Ukraine. So don't think that Putin's not going to expand this thing. 
Uh, he'd be crazy not to. Uh, now to make uh, matters even more dark, you know, our current priorities are all political and they're all in focused. You know, they're, uh, they're all we're focused on things that really don't matter, um, in my humble opinion. So uh, none of this, none of our, our current political focus is going to make us successful on any battlefield, to be honest with you. And uh, again, I'm not like a, I'm not trying to be overly political, but you know, I don't have a lot of faith, trust and confidence that we got the leadership and the national will to prevail in a big fight. You know, we, we're, having, we're struggling with little fights. Uh, and, and the bottom line on all this, you know, I, I don't want to see the kids that I love and the military that I love get wasted. You know what I mean? And yet another, another you know, conflict that we just don't understand. And, uh, you know, we can't take another, you know, bottom line, I, I don't want them kids dying. And uh, we can't take another politically motivated strategic loss and survive as a superpower. You know, it's, it's the domino effect. If we lose, we lose big this time. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, gentlemen. That was a great program. And Command Sergeant Major Rick Lamb, Dr. Brian Downing, Jason Black, each provided a very interesting perspective on the war. It was Really great to hear the synthesis, remembering that these are their personal opinions, but those opinions are based on great deals of experience in previous fights, as well as careful study of the one going on right now. Uh, At least two of them were actual cold warriors, too, actually having faced the Russians uh, back in the day before the Soviet Union came apart. Please remember that we're part of two programs, uh, Veterans Radio Hour 2.0, based on the old Veterans Radio Hour 1.0, a radio program, 2002-2003, with General Grange. And then we have a second program, Wounded But Not Broken, with our uh, valorous aviator, Patrick Scroggin, a retired chief warrant officer who uh, died on the operating table, came back. He's a fantastic interviewer. Uh, He's an outstanding endurance sportsman, an athlete, has a great family. He's doing a hell of a lot for veterans. Very interesting program called Wounded But Not Broken that airs on Monday night. We're part of a 12 or more platform syndication. You could subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Amazon. We even have an RSS feed, and there are many more places out there as well. We focus uh, primarily on what veterans might like to know, what our active serving military might like to know, and then, of course, our citizens. And as well, uh, we have a website that you can peruse, and obviously you can leave likes and so forth on a Facebook page and all of that. So please do that when you get a chance. But remember... We're here for you. No one left behind. Ranger Doug out. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, No one left behind.